0: Green. Red blue, this is Ed Cohen, your broadcast host on Global Radio Talk Show, a broadcast service of globalbusinessnews.net. Coming to you today from Finland and San Diego, California, let's say hello to our special guest today, Mr. Michael Gates. Hello, Michael.
1: Hi, it's great to be with you and uh, thanks for inviting me on the show.
0: You know, I've heard of you for so many years through corporate relocation industry conversations as an expert in the field of cross-culture or intercultural relations. So we're going to talk about that for a few minutes today. What is cross-culture? Why is it increasingly important for business?
1: Well, people have talked about culture obviously for thousands of years and if you think about modern cross culture i suppose it's something that became a topic which was seen relevant for business in in the
0: 1960s okay so mr michael gates tell us a little bit about yourself i can certainly see that you're british and you're living in finland how did that come about <laughs> it
1: was an accident <laughs> i was meant
0: to be going to spain oh.
1: and at the last minute of my interview they said look there's been a slight change instead of spain would you prefer to go to Finland? <laughs> so it was an accident. I was supposed to be here for nine months, but I'm still based here 31 years later. Nearly every week I'm outside Finland, uh, traveling the world, working with our global
0: clients. I see. Okay, and what kind of clients do you have, sir? Well, most of them are big corporations. So um, I think the first big corporation
1: I worked with was Nokia back in the uh, the, the early 90s. And um, of course, we all know the story. Nokia did very well in mobiles for many years, and then it came down. Uh, and um, however, you know, typically for a Finnish company, they're on the way up again. But um, in the other business that they uh, had formed, which was to do with global phone networks rather than mobiles uh, themselves.
0: So we're talking with Michael Gates, an associate fellow at Saeed Business School, University of Oxford. Michael Gates is also vice chairman of Richard Lewis Communications and is an internationally recognized teacher and writer on cross-cultural management and speaks regularly at business and government events. He's also a regular contributor to the Oxford Program on Negotiation, and he has also taught on a custom program on leadership for standard chartered and is a regular contributor at the Royal Swedish Technical University. Uh, Tell us more about all of this educational stuff you're doing.
1: Yeah, well, I got into this about 10 years ago, I suppose. And I was uh, speaking at an event for one of our corporate clients, and the speaker who was on before me was the founder and director of the Oxford program, and so he got me on that, and... um, I mean, the Oxford program is a uh, fantastic one. It's the number one business school in uh, in the U.K., according to Financial Times. In Oxford, in many lists over the past couple of years, has been judged the best university in the world. So it's been a great place to uh, to work and to go back to, because that's what I studied, and my background was actually in English literature.
0: English literature. Wow, that's interesting. Okay, so now you have also provided – I'm reading this uh, – you have also provided cross-cultural training in more than 30 countries – to corporations and organizations such as Microsoft and Rolls-Royce, State Oil, Unido, yeah. Eurojust, I mean, the list goes on and on. It's great. And you've been with Richard Lewis Communications since 1990, and now you're vice chairman. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. And so, so I've worked with Richard
1: for a long time, and many of the models and concepts we've worked on together. And my particular speciality has been – cross-cultural assessment, so where people do an assessment on the web to find out what they're like culturally, and then also in adapting Richard's materials for, I suppose, use when you're trying to get people to understand the concepts and put them into practice, because you know most of our clients have been corporations, governments as well. And although cross-culture, I think many people find it a fascinating subject in itself, what they're really trying to do is improve their results, whether financial results or professional results, uh, their ability to persuade, negotiate, lead, work in teams across
0: cultures. Well, you have a wonderful uh, radio voice, and I understand from your past you were a producer at Piccadilly Radio in Manchester. is that correct? That's right, yeah, that was one of the first commercial radio stations in the u k, and it was a fantastic time there
1: um, worked with very many interesting presenters who Carried on in 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 radio and um, another of my colleagues at the at the station then went on to a, a career with Disney. He just left in March as um, chairman of Disney International. So it was a really interesting group of people at that time, very creative.
0: Oh, I bet. Well, Paul uh, and I have been producing this. Uh Global radio talk show for six six years or so. We've done over a hundred broadcasts. So we're really honored to have you and when and with your background. It's just, you know, a wonderful plus for me. Thank you. So it says here in nineteen ninety seven you came up with an idea and implemented a concept for the world's first online cross cultural assessment and cultural data resource. You called it culture active says currently you have a database of 100,000, but how did you come up with that idea way back then, last century?
1: Well, I can tell you exactly how it happened. We'd been working a lot with the Finnish government, and they were just preparing for their first presidency of the EU. And at the time, we had a, a paper assessment. It was one which we adapted for them from work we'd been doing a little bit earlier with Nokia as they were beginning to expand globally. And so we used to get groups of future chair people of uh, the Finnish um, or the European Commission meetings coming in to learn how to chair international meetings more effectively, get their points across and, uh, and all this sort of cultural stuff. And so I remember sitting at my desk one day in the late 90s with a pile of about 200 exam scripts where people had filled in assessments on paper, and I thought there must be an easier way of doing this, and wouldn't it be great, as well as having people's individual answers to be able to consolidate the information and get some of the cultural trends within groups, and that's when I came up with the idea of
0: of putting it online. Great idea, sir. Great idea. So I want to get into the cross-cultural model, the Lewis model of culture and how it relates to other cultural models and stereotyping and things like that. Do you want to make a quick comment? And then I want to go a little bit deeper into politics.
1: Yeah. I mean, culture is a a really complex issue in many ways. You could say, you know, if you're trying to define what is culture, you could almost say what isn't culture, at least as far as human behavior goes, because it has such a deep effect. And then there are different sorts of cultures. You know, it comes from our upbringing, we, we acquire our culture from our parents, they get it from their parents and the original drivers of culture, I suppose, are survival and climate, history, religion, language, etc. And so how do you deal with this complexity? And there have been a number of models. The first really well-known modern model of culture, and I always have to say modern model because you know people have talked about culture for thousands of years, as I said, uh, was from an American called Edward T. Hall, and he came up with a pretty simple model, and his main contribution was saying that, you know, some cultures like to do one thing at a time, like Americans, Germans, the Brits, to a degree, and other cultures like to do many things at the same time, such as um, South Americans, Southern Europeans, Arab cultures. Uh, which was, a, you know at the time, a, a really interesting distinction. Then you had this uh, very famous cross-cultural research in the 70s from uh, a guy called Gerhard uh, Hofstede, um, Dutch, and then his student, Trompenars came up with another model. But the last two models were a little bit more academic, more complex in a way. So that's why Richard then decided to create his own model in just three parts, because people remember things in threes. Well, why don't you ask me another question and then I'll tell you a little bit more about the
0: Yeah, thank you. What are the three? Yeah, well, he
1: was influenced most by Hall, who came up with monochronic and polychronic. And Richard came up with three terms. One was linear active cultures and then multi-active cultures and finally reactive cultures. His linear active is related, of course, to Hall's monochronic, where you do one thing at a time. And he's Multi-active is related to Hall's Polychronic, where you do many things at a time. But he wanted to extend it a little bit further and think not just about time, but about other ways in which people who he defined as more linear behave. And they tend to be rather data-oriented, quite fact-oriented, and, you know, not so emotional, a little bit cool. Whereas multi-actives, as well as doing many things at a time, uh, more people oriented, a little bit more emotional, maybe a little bit more flexible with the truth. And, um, you know, in some circumstances that can be quite uh, important um, without making any sort of ethical judgment. But they felt that what Hall had missed was a term or a, you know, classification which fitted the culture that Richard had just been living in at the time, which was Japan. He was thinking, well, they've got elements of linear, they've got elements of multi-active, but other elements too. And he decided to call that type of culture, which one tends to find quite a lot in, in the Far East, but also a little bit in Finland, um, exceptionally in Europe, where they are a listening culture. They're quite reflective. They feel that harmony is extremely important. And um, they... Um, they tend not to initiate too much, you know. In a meeting, they want to hear your side first before coming back with their response.
0: Well, really scientific, of course, to understand something that's not scientific. <laughs> but uh, yeah. but I, I I get it that it's really important to to understand and to I don't know not measure but just sort of quantify or understand. Point one, point two, and point three, how to better communicate across cultures, borders, and time zones. You know, I can't help but ask about today being November 1, 2018, and identity politics, and without getting into politics, uh, but of course, that's part of culture. President Trump appears mm. to want to, on purpose, strike disharmony in the culture and doesn't seem to care about the impact on people being affected. He does certainly on the people that he's trying to rally for support, but everybody else is impacted on a negative way. And unfortunately, we're seeing some examples of that. So bringing that idea to Brexit from a cultural perspective, I've got my own ideas about all of that, but what's your take on this? How do you see that, especially from your perspective of not living inside Britain right now yeah well I think I'd like to first of all just
1: briefly go back to your comments about the US and then to link that to a view of history which was expressed probably most powerfully by Tolstoy and Tolstoy in War and Peace very much is of the belief that it's not so much great man or woman or a hero who can change history by their own will but it's the sort of person who knows how to ride a powerful trend. And I think there's very much been a trend in recent years of people being very concerned and attached to um, identity, national identity. And of course these things go in waves, uh, but particularly at a time when people are fearful about the future, you know, about things like globalization, etc., then um, they tend to cling to, you know, what they know best, um, identity. And what some of these leaders have done, both in the US and then in, um, in other European countries, is recognise that trend and, and ridden on it. And we've seen that, you know, very much in Europe and around the the issue of Brexit. Of course, Brexit's very complex and it's a very dangerous topic to talk about in the UK, you know, particularly the dinner party. I, mean, I spoke to someone recently who said they were thrown out of a dinner party because they were in favour of Brexit and it's broken up friendships and families. I'm sure you've had similar things happening in the US. Um, in the UK itself, um, it's something which is very unusual because it's not gone along the usual political lines between the the... Conservative and the Labour Party in both parties there are both Remainers and Brexiteers so it is a very deep chord and also the division in the UK between the north, northern parts of England and, and the metropolis around London where you know the uh, perceived um, London elite were out of touch in the north so it's a, in a way a protest vote and I think people voted for brexit um for many different reasons i've got another point, but i'm conscious i've talked quite a on this so perhaps you've got a question
0: i am transfixed and listening to every word and meaningfulness of what you've just said and i'd like to go a little deeper from your perspective in this Mm. and how it is perceived about interference, you know, relative to the idea, the concept of interference, whether it's from Russia or someone else, interfering with that original vote and why there should not be – what's your opinion? Should there be another vote, a general referendum? Well, I'd
1: sort of prefer not to give my own opinion on it. Um, I mean, what I would say is that it's almost both politically and technically impossible to have another vote. You know, and uh, if you look at the timetable in the upcoming European elections and then also, you know, the political danger of saying, OK, you can vote on this, but now you're going to be, be able to vote again. Um, that is very dangerous. My own personal opinion, and again, this is not expressing a political view, is that if there were another Brexit vote, and I'm absolutely sure there won't be, I mean, first of all, what would the question be? (laughs) That's always very important. But if the question were something along the lines of, you know, would you still vote for Brexit? I think actually the result would be even more in favour of Brexit than it was the last time. Why do I think this? um, And this goes to my sort of main point about it from a cultural point of view, is that I think a lot of Brits, even ones who voted Remain, have been quite shocked at the way in which um, the European Union, or the Commission particularly, uh, you know, the, the chief negotiators, have treated the UK and sort of disdained the UK and been discourteous in many ways and sort of shown really what their culture is, which is very different from British culture. And really what I would say is that if you think about the European Union, in many ways it's a theocracy. It has a very powerful belief and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's um, moving towards a system of government which is very much based on Plato's Republic, um, in which democracy is the second best system, and the best system is a system where you have the guardians who are a sort of educated elite who will make the best decisions on behalf of the people. And it's also based very much on French Cartesian logic, whereas Brits and Americans. Um, tend to have a much stronger belief, not in idealism, of course there is an idealism, um, particularly in, in the US with the um, you know, Declaration of Independence all those great documents uh, that um, describe what sort of people Americans are and their role in the world but at heart I think we're, we're both rather um, more pragmatic than idealistic and you know, let's just try it if it works we do a bit more Uh, And that's not a very French approach. And The European Union has at its heart, I think, a lot of French Cartesian um, thinking. Um, So, you know, I remember once hearing an American say to a French guy, you know, come on, Pierre, it works in practice. And Pierre said, well, it may work in practice, but uh, does it work in theory? And the Brits are not very theoretical. And so when someone pushes an ideal or an idea, Um, as a political system uh, without being able to say, come on, hang on let's just be reasonable here and see if we can come to some sort of compromise Cartesian logic doesn't compromise it believes compromise is a dirty word, and so I think for me at heart one of the reasons it eventually was going to happen that the UK would leave is actually a cultural one and a difference between Anglo-Saxon philosophy and
0: uh, what I'd call continental philosophy. So what about the German cultural contribution here? Is, is that along the lines of the French? I'd say they're somewhere between the French
1: and the Brits. They're certainly more theoretical than the Brits. I mean, if you read German philosophy, it's um, a lot of it is highly, highly theoretical, though I think they... They also are more willing to um, deal with or, or to use consensus than the French mm. and you see that in German corporations you know they 're hierarchical in a way that the French are hierarchical, yet at the same time they have some of the decision making from the bottom up, so they are more willing to tolerate consensus. but for them, you know historically, the European Union has been a way to detach themselves from to stronger national identity, for obvious <laughs> historical reasons in the 20th century, and as a means of promoting peace in Europe. So I think their attachment to the European ideal was a little bit different from the the French um, attachment. And I say France at the political level. I mean, obviously at the popular level, um, Marie Le Pen did. You know, although she didn't win, she did pretty well. And probably if you go into a French village and ask people, what do you think of um, the EU? You generally get a pretty negative answer. So I'm talking about the the you know more elite political level, um, this attachment to this um, rational Cartesian platonic uh, idea, if that makes any sense.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, at a high level. And if you could bear with me for a moment while I ask you just a couple of American questions. <laughs> um, yeah, please. What does Cartesian mean to you?
1: Okay, so Cartesian, it's an adjective from the French philosopher René Descartes, who was writing in the 17th century. And one of his most famous works was um, A Discourse on Method. And his Discourse on Method describes a logical way of coming to conclusions and, and thinking, really. And it's based on three parts, a thesis, an antithesis and a synthesis. And the thesis is where you put forward perhaps two or three different propositions. Then you analyse them and break them into separate parts and argue against them. So, you know, this is the case. However, one could say X, Y and Z, which disprove it. And then out of all this, you eventually come to a synthesis saying that having examined this problem from many different angles using logic, The only possible conclusion is whatever it is. The challenge with this is that all of this is based on an initial presupposition, which is about something which is indubitably true. And where it's very difficult to argue against uh, Cartesian or French logic is if your initial proposition, which the opposite party thinks is, you know, there 's no doubt that it 's true if you don 't agree with it, so if you begin with a, a sort of proposition that a united Europe with a harmonized um, you know tax system and harmony in trade and uh, you know eventually harmony in um, political democracy or whatever is is the right way to go, then that dictates how you behave in every single situation that you can 't give up on this um, initial Supposition, but I think that the problem is that the ending view for many of the powers that be in the EU is very different from the end of in view that the Brits may have had. So we signed up to it, I think, thinking, well, it will help trade and everything. And yeah, we know that um, there will be some, um, uh, you, you know, eventually a closer and closer union. But of course, we can opt out of things which we don't like. Whereas, if you're logical, you say, well, no, you can't opt out of it because that is against the the final end view of the ideal. And so then you come up against um, an opposition to pragmatism. And, I, you know, I'm not making a you know political point here. All I'm saying is it's two different systems which are both valid in themselves, which are ones of competing values. And, you know, there are competing values and sometimes they just can't be resolved.
0: So one of the issues seems to be, quite frankly, money, paying a fine or something. Yeah. You know, frankly, it's confusing to me. What is going on here? Why does it cost anything to separate? You know, why don't they just make a deal, just split? Yeah, well, that's a very pragmatic view. You know, they would um,
1: say that because if we make a deal, we're still going to have some of the advantages of Europe without being in Europe. That we do our money, and there's some debts from the past which need to be uh, cleared as well. I mean, I think things like um, you know pensions bills for mm-hmm. okay. UK uh, uh, you know employees of the European Union or the members of the Commission, Parliament, and you know it's a sort of membership fee. So we're sort of in a halfway house. that We still have to pay this fee to get the advantages. However, because we've left, we wouldn't have the um, you know, the voting rights. And you know other countries are in, on the fringes of Europe are in similar positions. However, there's an argument that if we just left and carried on under World Trade Organization rules, certainly in the UK, people have argued that in that case, if we don't come to a deal, then we don't pay any money. Obviously, the EU would argue differently. So I, I could envisage... There could be a big legal battle if there's no deal about this money, because of course you know the UK has been a big contributor, and um, you know what it's going to be difficult because they they overspend the budgets anyway every year, and if they use, lose a huge chunk of it, then that's going to cause problems.
0: All right, so let's let's bring this back to cross cultural, intercultural training and communications. Mm across time zones, borders and cultures as it relates to international business today there's such a drive towards building up a middle class where there hasn't been one and providing education to the masses and training so that there's more workers being developed for global business interactions not just for american companies but any company anywhere to do business internationally and so global talent development is what we're into yeah, But how does it relate now to understanding stereotypes and how do you communicate with people in a neutral area or trying to get some communication, some understanding without coming across as not bigoted, but pushy or not clear enough in defining things or getting to decisions? This is not about stereotyping, but it is, isn't it?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, the first point, you know, cross-cultural training is becoming something which um, many organisations now see as indispensable, particularly as there's more globalisation and people having to lead across cultures, people having to collaborate in teams across cultures with the added challenges of uh, distance and communicating virtually different time zones. So, I think there's a general recognition that cross-cultural Training is something which is needed. Uh, The question is how you do it, and one of the biggest blocks in many people's minds—not everyone—I mean, what you find is the more experienced people are across cultures, the happier they are in understanding what generalisations are. But people are less experienced, so we can't say this because you're stereotyping. No. It's very important to be clear about it. And nowadays, I hand out people a document I've written on one page to read before the sessions so we don't get bogged down in, in uh, an argument about the stereotype. I prefer to call it a generalization or, or maybe a prototype. And what you've got to remember is people are individuals, and yet um, when we're generalizing, we're talking about groups. So, any one American, um, you know, you're never going to find the the stereotypical American. Um, you know, people, are, people are different. Um, however, it can be very useful to talk about groups. I mean, imagine you've never been to Japan. And I say, when you go there, you really, at your first meeting, shouldn't expect too much. You should not have a list of bullet points that you've got to get through. You should take things at a slow pace. They take you out uh, to a tea ceremony or a meal, then you know, follow the ritual a little bit and uh, don't get impatient, don't keep looking at your watch. Well, you're likely to do better business there. Of course, you've got to weigh up confirming and disconfirming evidence. So if you arrive at your meeting in Japan, you know, Mr. Watanabe comes up and slaps you on the back, gives you a really firm handshake and throws his business card across the table at you and looks at his watch and says, I'll give you half an hour. Well, of course, you then adjust your pace to. This particular guy, you know, who may have studied in the U.S. and worked there and um, has been influenced by that. Or perhaps he's been on a cross-cultural course on dealing with Americans. So you've got to use common sense, but generalizations can be an extremely useful starting point. But you throw them out the window once you know the person that you're dealing with better.
0: This is fascinating stuff. So what are you doing next? What is exciting to you? What's going to be in your 2019?
1: Oh, wow. Well, I'm thinking more about what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks at the moment. but um, well, there are various things. One is, you know, online learning, and I've got a great interest in there. I'm working at the moment on a number of different programs, uh, online. Um, I just completed scripts for a client of ours for an online course about working with India. Next week, I'm going to be working on one on China. It's a mini MOOC. So, um, and online learning has always been fascinating. Because the amount of money that's spent on it and the lack of enthusiasm with which it's traditionally been used is is uh, is really interesting. I mean, only eight to ten percent of people finish most online courses. Um, So what we've been doing is breaking them down into very small chunks. We call them mini moocs. M O O. Mini moocs and um, and so if you package it in small chunks, people are more like, much more likely to use it. Um, then uh, ideas for the future, um, multiplayer video games where you use gamification to get people interested in learning. So you sort of learn by osmosis. If you con- contrast the low take-up on online training compared with the almost addiction that people have to gaming, then could you somehow harness that addiction to a good purpose that you have video games which are essentially interesting, intrinsically interesting and motivating, yet at the same time by doing them, you, about culture, uh, by osmosis.
0: What's your final point? And then I'm going to ask you more about gamification.
1: Yeah, well, the final point was, um, I mean, everyone is talking in every field of human endeavor in a way about artificial intelligence if you have a robot for example how do you build culture into that um, and can we build culture into it um, you know what if you sent a, a Japanese robot to the US programmed by the Japanese would it, would it behave in a way which uh, didn't gel with Americans because it had been programmed by the Japanese you know, can you make a culturally intelligent robot and can you get cultural advice um, through artificial intelligence you know, it's like having a, a cultural guru in your pocket. Um, you know, could you at one stage be in a meeting, have a, an earphone um, from your uh, mobile, and um, the phone listens to the meeting and then gives you advice on you know, what move to make next uh, with the Chinese, for example. I mean, this is all sci-fi, and uh, it's a long way off, but I think that's one direction in which things could be going.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. You know, how do you make a culturally
1: sensitive
0: robot? So about gamification, so does that mean like a game show? Like, you know, there's a host and there's panelists and there's questions? No, and no, no, no.
1: no what, what I mean is gamification in the sense of, um, you know, online video games. Um, you know, my, my kids, my sons uh, a few years ago used to play a lot of this game, World of Warcraft, and they were in teams and, um, you know, they had quests. And so you had a lot of motivators, you know, obviously the motivation to win, motivation by wanting to remain a good team player. So, you know, they based in Finland, but they had people in their team who were in the U.S., in India, China, all over the world, and they had to get together at pre-agreed times and go on missions. And um, so there's lots of motivators in that sort of um, game. But if you could instead have a, an online game in teams, that had a business goal but in order to achieve your targets you had to solve cultural dilemmas I think that could be pretty motivating particularly if you did it with virtual reality you know with a headset on something like oculus rift and if you could role play different characters so for example you know you could take on the role of a japanese and an excellent way of practicing being immersed in that world. Because I think a lot of understanding of the culture is being able to put yourself in the shoes of that culture. So in this business meeting, you're actually playing the Japanese. And I use this sort of thing in live training where people have to role play different cultures. But then if you can add it in a, a video game, which is motivating, I think it could be very powerful. Particularly if it's virtual reality, you feel as though you're actually there in Tokyo at the meeting, greeting your American business counterparts. Try and be the Japanese as an American. You'll see how it feels. You'll understand better the pressures that the Japanese are under. And you immerse yourself in their world, project yourself imaginatively in their world. And then as American, an American, it should be a lot easier to deal with Japanese in the future when you've been them. What is your website, Michael Gates? Well, it's a great website address. We're very proud of it because it came very early on. It's www. CrossCulture, one word, CrossCulture.com. So www.CrossCulture.com.
0: Got it. CrossCulture.com. That was an early one, wasn't it? Yeah, we're lucky to get that. Yeah, that's great. Well, I have really thoroughly enjoyed this. Michael Gates, Vice Chairman of Richard Lewis Communications and Associate Fellow at the Saeed Business School at the University of Oxford in England. Michael, thanks so much for your insight and your knowledge base and sharing it. Thank you, and uh, thanks for being such a great interview. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Okay, this is Ed Cohen, your host today on Global Radio Talk Show, a broadcast service of globalbusinessnews.net. Thank you, Michael Gates. Thank you. Yes, What a wonderful...